If you would please rise for the reading of God's word. Acts 19. Continuing on. Starting in verse 21. Now after all these things had taken place, Paul resolved to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. He said, after I, have, uh, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So after sending two of his assistants, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, he himself stayed on for a while in the province of Asia. At that time, a great disturbance take, uh, took place concerning the way. For a, na- a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought a great deal of business to the craftsmen. He gathered these together along with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity comes from this business. And you see and hear that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a large crowd, not only in Ephesus, but in particular, or practically all the provinces of Asia, by saying that, Gods made by hands are not gods at all. There's danger not only that this business of ours will come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as nothing. And she whom all the province of Asia and the world worship will suffer the loss of her greatness. When they heard this, they became enraged and began to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with the uproar, and the crowds rushed to the theater along, uh, together, dragging along with them Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions. But when Paul wanted to enter the public assembly, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the provincial authorities who were his friends sent a message to him, urging him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had met together. Some of the crowd concluded it was about Alexander because the Jews had pushed him in the front. Alexander, gesturing with his hands, was wanting to make defense before the public assembly, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for about two hours. This is God's word. You may be seated. Welcome, welcome. You guys all look dry. Yeah. You guys awake tonight? Are we here? I think it's so funny. Everybody's so spread out. Every time. Every time. Before we jump in, just a couple reminders, too. If you haven't grabbed one of these, they're out on the table when you walk in. Just a helpful little reminder of the daily prayer rhythms that we have. Um, So if that would be helpful. We're asking, we're trying to, together as a community, pray morning, midday, and evening, shifting our attention to Jesus regularly throughout the day, throughout the week. 
was thinking about this this week, actually, this prayer rhythm. Some scholars, so this prayer rhythm three times a day was happening in the early church. Some scholars actually, in a lot of, a lot of these gatherings, this, this prayer was happening corporately. It was happening together. Some scholars say that the early church had these kinds of gatherings, these little prayer gatherings, between 60 and 90 times a month, three times a day. They didn't, obviously not everybody made it, but that, that's startling. You know how many times, according to like recent research, American Christians gather to worship and to pray a month? I think it's 1.8 times a month. The average Christian is in fellowship, praying. We could grow. We could grow there, right? Amen? Amen. The other thing I just want to remind us of is story and table. If you are not, here's the thing, if you're not in a story and table group, if you aren't connected and you would like to jump into a story and table group, these are not closed groups. So if you're not connected, let us know. And you can just find me afterwards, and we can try to help connect you to a story and table group. Okay. <clears throat> we are going to continue on through chapter 19, as Nikolai read. And I know he read in a different version that's up there, but it's okay. You guys got the point. Paul's in Ephesus. He spent over two years in this city, in Ephesus, two years. This is by far the longest time that he spent in a city. And we looked last week at this as sort of a prototypical revival that happened. So this, this is a prototype of what God was doing or what God could do in a city. God's moving in a powerful way in this city. The first couple of verses of our chapter tonight of our section tonight 21 and 22 are really Luke giving us Paul's travel plans it's a little like insert that we get where Luke is telling us what Paul's intending to do he's intending to travel Paul purposed in his spirit he purposed in his heart he's guided by the holy spirit he's determined that he's going to move on from here he's going to go into Macedonia Nicaea and then to Jerusalem, and then to Rome. He's going to travel. Luke doesn't mention it here, but we know from other places, we know from other writings in Romans and 1 Corinthians, the reason Paul wanted to go through Asia to Jerusalem was that he wanted to collect and deliver a fund. He wanted to collect an offering and resources from these Gentile churches to go back to Jerusalem to help support them in the middle of a famine. And Paul's determined that he must go to see Rome. I think this shows Paul's passion, his, his commitment to see there's this Christian community that's developing in Rome, and Paul's saying, I, I need to go there. Little did he know how he would go there. I don't think he understood or knew the details clearly of how he would end up in Rome, and we're going to get there. But Luke's giving us his little 
foreshadowing of the rest of the book, the rest of the book of Acts and how this is going to play out here in these two verses. He's going to get to Rome. So Paul sends his helpers ahead of him, sends them, Timothy and Erastus, to go ahead of him and to prep the way to make things ready for him to come before he's going to visit and collect that fund. But before we get much further into our passage, we have to go back to verse 20, which we didn't read tonight, because it sets the context in a very important way. So if you have your Bibles, or if it's on your app, you can go to verse 20, chapter 19, verse 20. We spent quite a bit of time on this last week. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's Luke's way of summing up everything that had just happened previously in the chapter. The word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. I know I talked about this last week, but we have to start here. Before we get any further into this passage, we have to remind ourselves this, that the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. Last week we looked at this. Prevailing is different than just multiplying and increasing. Prevailing implies a conflict. Prevailing implies that the word of the Lord was shown to have strength and capacity and the capability of overcoming something. Prevailing means that the reward of increase was not automatic. It was fought, and there was a return that was coming, but it was fought with resistance and opposition. The word of the Lord was continuing to increase and prevail mightily. Remember what Luke had told us so far was happening in the city of Ephesus. There was extraordinary miracles that were happening. Remember, the, we looked at some of these miracles last week. Extraordinary miracles. The word of the Lord is increasing, is prevailing, and, and God is on the move. People are getting saved. People are coming to the faith. They're joining the church. They're, they're giving their lives to the Lord. They're surrendering in allegiance. Remember the Christians had that massive bonfire of their books of magic that were worth a fortune. They're burning these ties that they had to the old way of life that they may have been holding on to for self-preservation. These Ephesian believers had a new affection they had a new love for Jesus, and their affection for Jesus was so obvious that there's nothing else more valuable. That he is way more valuable than their gods, the power, their false source of trust and, and identity, or any amount of money and resources that Jesus is superior. He's more valuable than all of that. This is what happens when a person genuinely finds faith and allegiance in Jesus. This is the result. 
that he is superior. His worth and his value is far greater than anything else. Remember, think back to the days when you first gave your life to Jesus. We've experienced this. All of a sudden, things that used to seem valuable and important aren't. Things that used to seem super important, all of a sudden you could care less. When we submit, when we surrender, when we find Jesus and give allegiance to him, we get a set of new affections. Old loves and desires, old interests are replaced with a new desire. Like David in Psalm 27, one thing I want, one thing I desire, that I gaze on the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. These Ephesian Christians had become a new creation. They were in Christ. They had experienced a new love for Jesus and his church and his mission. These new believers clearly illustrate this reality. The Ephesians were known for their love of many things. Their love of sports and theater and idols their love of the famed goddess Artemis or Diana. Their love of wealth, power, prestige. But when Paul proclaimed the gospel and the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of this church, they experienced a complete and total change of their values, of their affections. Let's look at our passage tonight, starting in verse 23. About that time, a little note of time here Luke gives us, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. This phrase, this verse captures Paul's extended ministry in Ephesus. This one verse, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. This captures Paul's ministry. When the work was going so well, when, when the Apostle Paul was thinking about leaving Ephesus because things were going well, and he was planning on moving on, commotion breaks out. Commotion develops. Just worth pointing out, this is the third time in Acts that the church is called the way. This Christian movement is called the way. I just love that. I love that, that description. Before we were known as Christians, we were known as the way. The way of Jesus. So Christ's work through Paul, this revival, this, this work that was happening in Ephesus, it was causing no small disturbance. Great disturbances were being broken out. Remember back the beginning of this chapter, this began in the synagogue as Paul was preaching the Messiah. There was a disturbance. Then there was a disturbance in the cities around Ephesus as residents from all the regions and various places took the gospel back to their towns. 
There was disturbances in the demonic realm, too. Remember the extraordinary miracles. Demons were being cast out. And finally, there's this major disturbance in the city center. This major disturbance that breaks out in the city center in a response to the gospel's social impact in a city, there's a disturbance that breaks out. A group of protesters oppose the way. Remember back to chapter 17 in Thessalonica, the disciples were accused of turning the world upside down. Let's look at that verse, Acts chapter 17, verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. This is what's happening in Ephesus. The social systems, the social norms, the way of life that this city lived in was being turned upside down. The social system, the socioeconomic, the political systems were all being confronted by the good news of Jesus and by the reality that he's alive and at work amongst him, amongst the disciples. What we see in the story of Ephesus is a vivid picture of what happens when the people exalt Jesus instead of idols. See, Paul's gospel-centered, Jesus-exalting, spirit-empowered ministry, it impacted the local economy. It impacted the local social norms, the local social systems. It caused an uproar, a disturbance. This begins with this man, Demetrius, who's a leader of the silversmiths. He's a craftsman. These craftsmen made these silver replicas of either the idol of Artemis or of the temple. And people would purchase these for themselves as souvenirs or as to, to build home altars. They were found throughout the Mediterranean world. Archaeologists are still finding them. These trinkets. And it's almost as if Luke downplays this story a little bit. The way he tells this story. I think... I have no doubt that this situation was a little bit more dire than Luke makes it sound. Listen to the way Paul describes, maybe, or gives allusion to what's happening here. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul would say that he fought wild beasts in Ephesus. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says that he had despaired even of life in the face of a deadly peril in Ephesus. Romans 16, Paul says that Priscilla and Aquila had risked their lives for him. Something intense is happening here. Let's read verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, bought, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know 
that from this business we have our wealth. And you, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods. I'll tell you what, if that was my indictment, if the craftsmen who built idols said about me or you that you were ruining the entire system, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. That, that's a good thing, I think. Verse 27. There is danger not only to this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So here's what's happening. This guy, Demetrius, he gathers this crew of craftsmen, and he begins to complain. He opens his speech, and here's his argument. Paul is threatening their livelihood. Paul is threatening their, their way of normal, their profitability and its reputation. Paul is misleading people by proclaiming that gods made with hands are not actually gods. To these claims, he adds a third argument. Paul's preaching threatens to rob the world-renowned temple of Artemis from its glory, its rightful glory. All of this essentially adds up to him saying to attack Artemis, to challenge the worth of the city's God, is to challenge Ephesus itself. The temple of Artemis was massive. And her cult, ran entirely by female officials, was the religious center of the whole area. I think actually I have a picture we can show of the temple. See if we an artist rendition of what the temple may have looked like. This thing was huge. Artemis, her Greek god, some of your translations might call her Diana was the most powerful god in this place, in this city. The distant past, as the legend was told, somewhere near Ephesus, a meteorite had smashed into the ground. A rock fell from heaven. The local people had regarded it as a gift from heaven and a statue of this god Diana, Artemis. Images of this goddess, large and small, dominated the city. There were statues all over the city. There were little ones enshrined in homes. The silversmiths made a fortune selling these images. Archaeologists have found dozens of them. All over. This temple in Ephesus was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
It was supported by 127 pillars, each 60 feet high. It was decorated with great sculptures. It was lost to history and only rediscovered relatively recently. This temple was also a major treasury. It, was, it functioned as a bank in the ancient world where merchants and kings and even cities would make deposits that their money could be kept safe. And just like in Philippi and in elsewhere, the Messiah, the message of Jesus, the Messiah, was a clear critique of all idolatry. And it was having an impact on the business of this temple. It was impacting the way life happened. We can take that picture down. You can go black. Actually, let's show the modern where it's at right now. I just think this is great. That's all that's left. That's all that's left. Artemis her temple, her glory, that's all that's left. Do you know how many Christians worshipped today? Jesus is exalted all over the world. Her glory is destroyed. God made with human hands. Anyways, I just love that. Let me try to make this make sense for us. What's happening? Imagine for yourself, think... Somebody setting up shop in the financial district of a great city, setting up downtown San Francisco or New York, setting up on Wall Street, and using this incredible ministry of, of miracles, this powerful ministry of healing over and over and over again. And he's proclaiming that the money markets and the stock markets were simply a way of worshiping the God of mammon. And traction was picking up. This person's proclaiming that this worship of the God of mammon is destroying the lives and the livelihoods of millions in other parts of the world. And that the whole system was rotten and anybody who was a part of it should reject it outright. You think that person might get maybe some harsh words from people at Wall Street? Some people who stood to lose a lot of money based on these claims? That's what's happening here. The financial center, the, the, the lifeblood of the finances of the city of Ephesus is being confronted and challenged by Paul who's proclaiming Jesus as the one true living God. That every other God is not a God. It's just an image carved out of stone. No wonder Demetrius and his friends are alarmed. The reality is Demetrius had no interest in trying to learn what Paul was teaching. He had no interest in trying to learn from these Christians. He was driven ultimately by greed, which Colossians 3 says is idolatry. He was not driven by the, his love for this goddess. 
or his love for city. He was, he was driven by greed and ambition. He was driven by dollars, not doctrine. Many today would, would don't necessarily bow down to statues. We're too advanced for that. But millions bow down to an idol of money, security, safety, convenience, comfort. And what do people do when their idols are threatened? When the object of your affection, the thing that you worship, the thing that has your attention, when that is threatened, what do you do? If they don't repent, if they don't look to Jesus instead of their idols, they get angry. And that's what happens in this story. They get angry. Instead of saying Jesus is Lord, let's submit to him, let's, let's find other ways of making a living. Clearly this isn't working out for us. Let's make some new products out of silver. No, they, they decide to assault the messenger. They decide chaos is the way to accomplish this. And since the wild rioters, this riot breaks out, and since they can't get Paul, they take one of Paul's friends as companions to this amphitheater. I think there's a picture, actually. Let's look at this. This theater it's huge. 25,000, 24,000 people could fit in this amphitheater. This is where, this is Ephesus, this is where this story is happening. Since the rioters couldn't get Paul, they take his companions there. Now we, what's fascinating in this story is Paul, being the evangelist that he was, being the apostle that he was, seems to be eager. There's a crowd, 24,000 people assembled. What does Paul want to do? He wants to preach. He wants to get in front of that group and proclaim the reality of the gospel of Jesus. He wants to address probably his largest crowd ever, bigger than the, the, uh, what happened in Athens, the Areopagus. Paul tries to enter the scene, but he's actually held back by his friends. And city officials, believe it or not, hold him back and say, you can't do this. You can't do this. They will kill you. Trying to avoid the mob. This is a scene of total chaos. With one group shouting one thing and another group shouting something else. Some people not even knowing why they're assembled. Like a flash mob, but people don't even understand or know why they're there. It's just pandemonium and chaos. This opposition against Paul, honestly, is a great compliment to the effectiveness of his work in the city of Ephesus. Paul was not on a campaign necessarily to close the temple of Diana. He wasn't out campaigning to get rid of 
Artemis in the temple, necessarily. He was simply proclaiming Jesus, living faithfully to the way of Jesus. He simply did the Lord's work, and as people came to Jesus and their affections were shifted and changed, as their loves were changed, they stopped worshiping Diana. They stopped buying these artifacts. They stopped buying these statues. They burned their books. Because the reality is our faith should affect the economy around us. Not just personally, but the community. It should affect things beyond us. And the reality is, that effect is not always welcomed. That effect is not always desired. In Ephesus, business was down. The pagan shrines, because of this transformation, were not being sold. We know that this didn't just happen in Ephesus. This happened all over the Roman Empire and throughout history. This is what happens when God moves in a city through a church. For example, we have a letter written from a Roman official. You might recognize the name, Pliny the Younger. Pliny writes this letter to another official, emperor, describing how people were not going to the shrines anymore. He's complaining, saying the Christians have had such an influence that people aren't going to the places of pagan worship anymore. He wanted to know what he should do about it. Should he arrest the Christians? Should he, what, what do you do when this Christianity is taken over, and people aren't worshiping the gods anymore. They're not buying the statues. They're not given over to the idol worship that everybody else is. What do you do with that? It was affecting the economy. Spurgeon said this about how we should endeavor to change society, and I, I, I love this quote. He said, I wish the gospel would affect the trade of London. I wish it might. There are some trades that need affecting, need to be cut a little shorter, but not by an act of parliament. Let acts of parliament leave us alone. We can fight that battle, this battle alone. But may it come to an end by the spread of the gospel. I have no faith in any reformation that does not come through man's hearts being changed. That's what we're after. So what happens? This riot builds momentum. There's chanting, shouting. <clears throat> the city is filled with confusion. Let's read verse 29. The city is filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Erasticus, Macedonians who were, who, were from Paul's, who were Paul's companions in travel. 
Jump to verse 32. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't even know why they were there. They begin chanting, shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's worth pointing out. What's happening here in this scene, this mob that's coming together, there's this word in your Bible, this word assembly. It's, I think, three times in this section of Scripture. It's worth pointing out, that's the word ekklesia in Greek. It's the same word that we get church. Same, it's the same word, church. Paints a different picture of the purpose of this assembly, of this gathering. There's something happening in the city, and the assembly comes together to solve the problem. That's what the church is. Just worth pointing out. So, Rome has this rule against mobs. Rome doesn't like disorder, civil dis disorder, dis disruptions. And it has often happened through the story of Christians that when God moves among his people, when people become serious about the way of Jesus, things like this happen. Conflict breaks out. I read a story this week about William Booth from the Salvation Army. William Booth, you guys familiar with Salvation Army? Beyond just the, the red buckets and the thrift stores. They have a history of God doing incredible things. And God was at work so much, doing so much in this movement early on. There was the pimps, the bar owners, the people who had something financial to lose from what God was doing through the Salvation Army. They actually formed a counter-army. They called it, they, had, they named it, they called it the, what is it, the Skeleton Army. And they opposed William Booth, and they actually murdered some of the people who were working with him. This stuff has happened throughout history. And we're seeing it here in Ephesus, but this happens. Let's jump back to our story. The Jews put forward this guy, Alexander, I think it only adds to the confusion. Nobody really knows why he's there. Probably as a defense to distance themselves from the Jews, the put the, or distance themselves from the Christians, the Jews put this guy Alexander up to try to speak to the crowds and calm them down. <coughs> but before he can even deliver his speech, the voice of the crowd drowns him out. 
And for two hours they chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This repeated chant must have sent chills up the back of the Christians, including Paul. For two hours, the noise must have been deafening. The acoustics in that theater are said to be so good that you could hear things clearly. They were better even back in the day. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on this passage, said this, and I was half-joking, I want to read this, but it fits perfectly in the context of football game that's happening next week. N.T. Wright says this, We ought to know this scene by now. We see it often enough on our TV screens. A huge gathering assembled in the streets or in a public arena. Faces are flushed with excitement, maybe anger. Being reminded of some great hero, some leader, has whipped them up into an excitement. They're eager to show what's what. The chanting gets louder and louder, rhythmic and strong, summoning up the energy of blood, tribal identity, local pride. It's designed to give energy to those who are going out to fight their battles. To strike terror in their enemies, and it often works. And that's just football. He's talking about soccer, obviously. He's British. We understand that, that sort of like frenzy that happens in a stadium. I may not be a 49er fan. Grew up a Raider fan. Sorry. They broke my heart over and over and over again. But I've been in those stadiums. I've, the Raiders are great at this. The crowd chanting and pulsing. You can feel it, pushing the athletes on the field. That's what's happening here. This, this, this commotion, this two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're chanting and chanting, working things up. For hours, they're shouting it. Take a second. Just think, how, how does this echo into our time? How does this play out? People today, we, we, we say this, maybe not in our words, we're not chanting necessarily like this, but through the things that we value, the things that we spend our money on, the way that we spend our time, we do the same thing. What is it? Great is my sports team. Great is my sports team. Great is my political party. Great is my nation. Great is the consumer economics. Great is the market. Great is my entertainment. 
my material wealth, my comfort, my convenience. What is it? That are your neighbors, that your family, that you struggle with. Yet the reality is, if somebody says, if you stood up, if we proclaimed boldly, great is the Lord, great is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, greatly to be praised, great is Jesus, we would be looked at as the weird ones. We would be looked at as odd. Yet for all the supporters of the two hours of chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, for all of that support and chanting and fervor and chaos, no one worships her today. Not directly. Yet there are millions and millions of Christians throughout the world lifting up the name of Jesus, willing to die for him. That temple is destroyed. All that remains is one lonely pillar. Yet the church is thriving and growing and expanding. The gospel of Jesus is still, to this day, being proclaimed and real and transforming lives and communities. This chapter teaches us a few lessons. Teaches us that when disciples have true revival, when there's a true move of God in a city or in a in a church, society gets a revolution. When the spirit moves in a community of disciples, things begin to change. How does this end? I'm going long again, guys. I'm sorry. The town clerk, verse 35, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that in the city of the Ephesians, city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have been brought, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have any complaint against him, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall settle into the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can justify this commotion. And when he had said this, 
he dismissed the assembly. This city clerk stands up, something like a, a mayor or a spokesman, a representative of the city. He stands up and he speaks reasonable words. He breaks up this chaos. Stands out to me that Paul, the way it seems to me, this city clerk says that Paul had not blasphemed, had not blasphemed this goddess, had not spoken against her, blasphemed her. The reality is Paul was on a pro-Jesus campaign. He wasn't out to tear down anything else. He was just existing to glorify Jesus. There's implications to that. Diana's not really a god, but he's not out trying to tear down this temple. What we learn from this is that being so clean in our witness, and our proclamation of Jesus, the powerful name of Jesus, that the people indeed, the people in our city, the people in our economy, the people in our political involvement, all of that are radically challenged. And yet, we are to be so innocent in our actual behavior that there's nothing they can accuse us of. See that juxtaposition? Paul was so clear with the gospel that everybody knew. But there was nothing he actually did that he could be charged with. There's a fine line to be walked here that Paul walked between ineffective preaching of the gospel that makes no actual social impact on society, has no demands on the world around us. That's, that's not what we're talking about. Or on the other hand, a noisy, aggressive, offensive proclamation that has no effect either. There's a fine line to be walked there. As I think about how this passage, this story of what happened, what God did in Ephesus, as I think about how that affects us, what does this mean for us now? What's our takeaway? What do you do with this this next week? We don't have necessarily a big temple. Last week we looked at this passage, and I'm sure we'll revisit this before we leave Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus sends a note to the church in Ephesus. He says this, Revelation 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hands, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. says this, I know your works your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you have endured patiently and are bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, 
verse 4, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This note from Jesus is startling. Remember, it's about your affections. What was happening in the city of Ephesus was people's loves and their affections was being challenged and changed. Their loves and priorities were being put in proper order. Here's what's sobering to me about this passage. All of these things, these things that Jesus lists in Revelation 2, they're high value to me. They're high value to us in this church. We want you, all of us in this church, to have good works. Patient endurance. Zero tolerance for evil. to be discerning and testing of spirits, testing of teachers. We want you not to grow weary of doing good, to have a long endurance. But in and of themselves, though those are good things, though those are right things, things that we want to develop and do, in and of themselves, they are not good enough. They are not ultimately what we're to be about. If we have not love, Paul says, we are a clanging cymbal, a resounding gong. If our works, our endurance, our high moral standard, our ethics, you can have all of that. But if it's not coming out of a supreme love and allegiance and loyalty, devotion to King Jesus, it's worthless. That's convicting for me. That's challenging. That I might be a moral person, have moral high standings, but if it's not coming from an affection and allegiance and a love and a devotion to Jesus... It's worthless. What does Jesus say to do? Verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Go back to your first love, to your first affections. Do the things you did at first. When Jesus was your top priority, your main affection, the thing that you cared most about before you got busy and caught up with the things of life, before you got mixed up 
even with good things. Remember that feeling of devotion and affection. This is why we're doing things like a daily prayer rhythm. This is why we sing in worship. Because our first priority, our main ministry, the most important thing you can do in a week is adore Jesus. Because he is the most excellent thing, supreme, more glorious than anything else, worth everything. He's the treasure hidden in the field that you should sell everything to get. He is worth it. Let's pray tonight. Worship team, come up. Jesus, I thank you. That we can only love you because you first loved us. Jesus, I thank you that we have the privilege of responding in affection to you. That we can look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. That we can gaze on your beauty. God, I pray that we as a community, as a church community, would be known for the prayer of David. The one thing I want, one thing I desire, that I may gaze on the beauty of the Lord, that I would inquire in the temple, that I would behold Jesus. We have options. There's lots of things that we can give our affection and our attention and our devotion to. There's lots of things, God, but help us to remember you. Turn our attention to you, King Jesus. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name.